to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams so you can be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with free resources that could help you. For example, there are free quizzes you can take, including one that will tell you what might be standing in your way of finding love and another that will tell you what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her. There are free video tutorials you can watch that explain why women do the things they do and how you can navigate the frustrating world of lesbian dating with confidence, even if you're feeling lonely and desperate. There are free guides you can download to learn the secrets of how to avoid rejection, heal from heartbreak, and find epic lesbian love, And there's a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is available now on womenwantingwomen.com. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. But before we go any further, I have a question. Who's the first lesbian friend you text when you meet someone new or match on an app or get back from a date? Well, during the years I was single, between breaking up with my ex and meeting my fiancé, that person for me was Barbara Arredondo Ayala. But in addition to being an amazing friend, Barbara is also an incredible badass and a cultural leader in Latin America. And everyone in the queer community can be proud that she's one of our own. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I talked to Barbara all about her own history of how she's been pushing boundaries and making an impact on the international stage ever since she was in her early 20s. You can learn more about her and follow what she's doing on Instagram at Barbara Arredondo Ayala. But before you do, stick around for all the wisdom, inspiration, and unforgettable stories she shares with us here. Barbara. I'm so happy that we're finally doing this. I'm so happy to be here, Jordana, at last. At long last. Such an honor. So why don't you just start by introducing yourself and sharing a little about your background and what you do and what you're up to. Of course. I'm Barbara. I am from Monterrey, Mexico. I was born and raised here. I live between Monterrey and Mexico City. And... I call myself, I'm an activist, I'm a producer. Also, I've been also an entrepreneur. And I love, I love storytelling. I love finding stories that are worth sharing with others, stories that make us grow, that make us feel inspired, that make us learn new perspectives about ourselves and others. And for me, finding stories that inspire us and challenges us are the main driver of what I do. And you've been doing this since you were young, right? Is there a story about you ending up in Davos or something as a relatively young kid, as a journalist? Yes, it was. I started off as a journalist. I My major was international relations, and that's where I realized I loved writing. And 
Then I, I started working as a journalist in the first online media in the country at the time, which was very innovative. I was 23. I got to interview very cool people and write about very interesting issues such as climate change, social justice, emotional intelligence, politics. I was very lucky. I had the chance to write basically about almost anything I would be interested in. So what actually got me to Davos, it was a couple years later. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain how I got into being a journalist to curating and creating summits and conferences around the world. I'm from San Pedro, which is this city in, in Monterrey that is very conservative. It's known as one of the wealthiest or the wealthiest county and safest county in Latin America. And around 2008 to 2012, we had a president at the time who called out a war against drugs. So organized crime was, it was everywhere across the country. And we, in my city, we had never witnessed or experienced, uh, as an example, let's say, we, we had a curfew at the time. We had soldiers patrolling streets that were never patrolled by, by the army. So it was a very scary time. I was still in school and also working half-time as a journalist. And it was a sad time because the narrative everywhere was these people who belong to these organized crime groups should just be killed or you know, they, they weren't, we weren't even analyzing. Many people weren't even going to the root as to why this crime was happening, right? The conversation around education, access to jobs, access to a better quality of life, it was just a part of it. So I, I really thought deep in my, you know, deep in myself that there were people who surely had transformed their cities and, and their countries even during worse times than what we were going through. So as a journalist, I set up myself on a mission of finding those people who were the 21st century change makers and, you know, who probably didn't dress as those role models we grew up with in the 70s or 80s, but that were inciting change. And in doing all this research of, you know, who, who were those change makers, I came across a profile written by Zainab Salvi, who was the founder of Women for Women International. And she's this Iraqi activist whose father was Saddam Hussein's personal pilot. And she was, their family was forced to move to Saddam's palace when she was seven years old. And when she turned 19, her mother noticed Saddam was giving her the look, you know, as, as if he wanted her to be part of his harem. So the, her mother arranged a marriage for her and, and she had to marry someone in the U.S. And it was a, a dreadful marriage. Three years later, uh, while she was studying, the war in Bosnia broke out and she remarried someone else, and instead of planning a trip with, with her new husband, she decided to go to Bosnia and help a group of women. And I thought that was very inspiring. She didn't know the language. She didn't know the full context of many things. And that's how she started Women for Women International. And when I met her, 
the organization was already working in eight war-torn countries, helping women survivors of war, giving them uh, financial tools and also emotional support to begin their own businesses. So I thought it was very inspiring and, and, and meeting her really changed my life in the sense that there are many people, you know, who do have programs or best practices that we can learn from. So that whole year, that was 2009, I got to interview economists such as Jeffrey Sachs or the U.S. business editor for The Economist, Matthew Bishop. And just learning from a variety of profiles, I got to go to COP15, which was the climate change, UN's climate change conference, the first one that became, you know, very relevant in terms of media, attendees, heads of states assisting. I think I was one of the few less than five Mexican media presence. I At the time, I got a grant from an organization that was inviting journalists from around the world to be part of the conference. And I got to meet all kinds of people from just being side to side next to Daryl Hannah or Tom York from Radiohead or the head at the time of Greenpeace. And I was very young. I was 25, 26, and that was very inspiring for me. So it was a lot of opportunities throughout the year of learning from all these different voices from all of different all kinds of spaces and after when I met Zainab that summer that's when I knew I wanted to do a conference I wanted to create a space where I could step out from the journalist side and I could tell stories in a live format as a producer bringing all these people in and having an audience learn directly from them hearing their own stories and, you know, where my bias as a writer wouldn't be interfering with, with that connection they could create between each other. So fast forward a couple months later, two months later, I got invited by an organization to work with them. They saw my interview with Zainab. I said, yes, I had never done a conference in my life <laughs> or organized even a party, I guess. And there I was uh, a couple months later putting together a summit for 6,000 people and, you know, talking about nonviolence and social justice, education, economy, etc. And that was a very enriching experience. I got to do that two years and also advise a couple of projects in New York and one in India. And now in hindsight, if I think about it, I was 28 when all, you know, in between 27, 28, when that happened, I I was having access to, you know, high-level spaces or, or conversations that really fed my, not only my brain, but my soul in terms of what we can do as human beings when we have the right words and when we're in the right kinds of spaces and conversations to envision change. Yeah, I love your approach. Um, first of all, it's tragic to have been living in a place where you, when you only knew peace and comfort and safety, and then to see that turn around must have been so terrifying. But I love your approach where you thought to yourself, what we're going through is bad, but it's not as bad as other people in history and people have been through worse and they found their way out. And so if we can focus on that and what they did to 
turn things around and make it better and we find those change makers, there's a lot of wisdom to be found there. And I love that. And it's so cool how then you brought yourself like with those questions to meet all these great people. And this woman, Zainab, sounds amazing. And I think the fact that growing up in a city where there's so much comfort, comfort can be good and bad. And in this sense, it wasn't the right space for innovation to to grow at the time. You know, the generations that came before us, to me as, as a younger person at the time, I was very disappointed about the leadership that was going on in my own city. Many people decided to to move and to move to other cities in the U.S. or to move to Mexico City. And I respect those decisions, but it's also what kind of message are you giving to others who cannot move, whether it's for financial reasons or, you know, whatever you call it. And I think um, I've always been in a search of what leadership means and what we stand for and what, what we can imagine when, you know, we... We are always, what can, what can we imagine when we bet on the possibility of a different kind of context? This is why storytelling is key for me. I love reading about, you know, human history, human nature, neuroscience, uh, all kinds of, you know, different arenas, very different from mine, but they're very telling about how this, our spirit was created our beliefs, our cultural narratives, how you can understand why, you know, certain people in certain kinds of cities respond one way to, to adversity or not. And for me, it was a chance, you know, crisis is an opportunity for change. And I'll just give you this quick example. Many years later, there was an op-ed published by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times about Monterrey. And he visited the city, I think, Six years later, uh, you know, then this time around like 2016, 17, and he he said at the time, you know, forget about Brazil, India, or China. The future of the world is coming out of Monterrey. He had come here to speak at a university, and just many people from my generation, you know, this gap five years of this generation, we were so touched by this conflict, like being in. We had never been in this comfort that we all kinds of projects started to come out of this, you know, from different kinds of businesses to different kinds of movements to all kinds of entrepreneurship initiatives. And I think I guess what I'm trying to say is comfort is something we should be afraid of because it it, it narrows and limits our what we think of ourselves and what we think what our lives could look like. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, but I would love to see people afraid of comfort when it means they're not challenging themselves. Obviously, I'd rather not have a lack of comfort be associated with violence in the streets or unrest in a society or the kind of things that more vulnerable people can't protect themselves from. So the the kind of discomfort that comes from challenging ourselves is great but what you guys had to go through to meet that challenge I know I wish we hadn't had to go through that to realize what we could be capable of yeah 
but yeah, that, that's in a, it's such a cool background about how you ended up starting your first conference. It just seems like such a big thing to have tackled all by yourself. There was a company that hired you to do it. Is that what it was originally you were working? There was a group here, an organization that had put on their first conference and they asked to show the interview I had made to Zainab Salvi. So I remember walking into that space and just seeing 6,000 people watching the interview I had realized. And, you know, the reality is the minute I walked out of Zainab's interview, I interviewed her in New York. I called my mom and I told her, I really want to put an event together. I want people to know her story outside of the article that I'm writing about her and her organization. And this happened within a year from, from the moment I met her to the time the conference said like 14 months went by. That's a very short time. So this was an organization that was trying to put their first conference together. And after having access to that kind of content, they reached out to me and they asked me, you know, do you know anyone who would want to work with us? We do this kind of project. And I said, I'll, I'll ask around. I'll think of someone. I didn't realize at the moment this woman was asking me if I wanted to join her until a couple of weeks later. And I thought, maybe this is my chance to put together an event. Maybe it doesn't have the name. It, it's not called what I would like it to be called, but it's an opportunity for me to learn about, you know, producing events or, you know, using the different kinds of spaces uh, to create change. So I went ahead and I took it. Yeah, it sounds to me like it was exactly what you had asked for in your mind, right? You said you wanted to do it and then someone handed you, even if it wasn't the exact opportunity, it was clearly a parallel opportunity. And yeah, that's so cool that you went with it. So then what happened from there? Everything happened. <laughs> Everything and then some. It was a very special conference because we had lots of teachers as attendees, students, many people connected online. This is 2010. It was at a time where it was very new for things to be live streamed and to have this kind of access. I got invited to advise uh, some things in New York. And it was a very special moment because for me, what was the most rewarding is was watching people heal from different kinds of issues and things or seeing how they got ideas to start new things or even creating the spaces on the side for the different partners or key local leaders to connect with the people who were visiting us and maybe embark on a new project. That was, for me, what it was all about. How can we make the most of everyone's time and actually build something if that's what we that's what we want to do. So I realized I loved doing that. I realized it was a big responsibility because ultimately when you create a space where you in a way are trying to share hope with others and when people feel alone, hopeless or helpless, as a human beings, we are in a very fragile state when we feel lost. So for me, it was very important to respect that place where, where as a city we were in and how can I, what can I do to give you the most value 
and give you an array of messages that can help you in what you need, whatever that is. So what happened is that I did that for two years and I realized I wanted to start, I, I wanted to do things in my own. Being part of that organization was wonderful, but also I wanted to be more vocal about other things. For example, I believe when you create a space, however, whatever the size that space is, when you have an audience, and there's a task at hand, there's always the option to create a call to action. You know, you can invite people to do something, give them the, the option to use their time for whatever. And I wanted to do that. So I, I decided to leave that organization and, and create another project, which at the time it was called I Am Here. It was very much inspired by, by Zainab's work. And it was basically a program where we invited women I admired from different kind of uh, backgrounds. So from Patti Smith to Patti Smith, who's a musician and, and punk singer and writer, to Abby Disney, the filmmaker, Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, Zainab Salby, um, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who's a filmmaker, and she's now California's first partner. This was in 2012. And we paired them with local leaders. So from Alicia Navarro, who was one of the first women in the city to create her own NGO for children who had some kind of cerebral paralysis. We didn't have any organizations that attended that. And she started the first in the 70s. Um, So it was beautiful to see for us locally to pair women on that same stage and honoring each without creating any kinds of differences. It was an important message for the audience. And we also gave them spaces where they could connect in different workshops. It was a four month program. And also the opportunity to participate in five community building projects. So throughout those four months, we kicked off in August and showcasing what the ask was from these NGOs and we had to fulfill that goal by December. And to, to see women, the audience was targeted to women who were decision makers, who either because of their positions, they had access to resources or some sort of influence. To see this kind of women who wouldn't leave the, you know, the neighborhood or the county out of fear, right, because of security or safety reasons, going out of their counties, visiting other parts of the state and seeing they could enable ch- change for themselves, it was huge. After that, I took that program to Mexico City and it was uh, in a different format and I opened it to youth and to men. It was very important to for me to open these kind of spaces back to to men as well and, and involve a lot of more youth. And I created this partnership with like the, the largest jail for youth for both young men and young women. And we had them attend in the audience as, as any other audience member would attend and, and get a chance to listen to all this kind of content. In person or streaming? In person. That's amazing. Yeah, the theater, we had them on the second level and they attended with all these guards and you know, they were cuffed. They, it was because, you know, there was young 14 to 12 to 16 year olds just listening to messages from people from the U.S., Japan, Mexico, 
um, all parts of the world and all kinds of issues and, and stuff. And six months later, I sat with the director of the jail and, and he told me, to this day, all this youth asks me if what they heard was real. So all these little things gave me a lot of hope in what we are told can open new windows and what we can imagine as to be possible. And so that's how I get to, to Davos. I was invited. First, I was invited to be part of the Global Shapers group. Davos has two communities, the Young Global Leaders and the Global Shapers. The Global sh Shapers were below 30. And then I, I got to meet a businesswoman who started her organization to empower women in Latin America and promote financial inclusion. So I, I joined her group. And she she got invited to go to Davos. And it was very convenient that I, I was part of the Global Shaper community and just being there and being part of this agenda setting, you know, being someone that had been working from a grassroots perspective and, and with different kinds of formats from storytelling, from writing stories to producing videos to producing spaces. It Without a doubt, it was a very interesting space to be at. Yeah, it's amazing. What an amazing background. And during those early years, you were doing all these amazing things on such an amazing global stage. But my understanding is you weren't quite out at that time, right? Uh, I was out when I was, I came out when I was 30, so 10 years ago. Yeah. So can we also go back to how old you were when you realized that you were gay, uh, how that played out in the relatively conservative place that you were from and how that was being in the closet on such a big stage? Well, I only realized until I was 28. So it wasn't as present. But when when I was 28 and I, and I started doing the I Am Here project, I did feel heavy in the sense because I had been vocal about so many issues and inviting people to speak out and do all kinds of things that I felt like I was hiding something and I didn't like it. First of all, I didn't like hiding anything from my mother. I have a very close relationship with her. Uh, I didn't like not telling people this part of me, afraid of what they would think because of the kind of work that I was doing. And, and you know, after that first... Um, no, after the second I Am Here conference happened, I, I couldn't take it. So I, I, I came out first to my family. And I remember that I had this long relationship. And when that relationship ended, it lasted almost five years. A friend of mine had a very public blog. And I she invited me to write a blog about it. And I posted it and just put it everywhere in social media and shut down my computer. And that's how I, I basically came out to everyone. And at that point, you were a relatively public figure? Well, some people knew who I was in my hometown and in Mexico City, with, with, you know, around the projects I was doing. But I was just, I, I couldn't. It's just difficult, I guess, when, when people talk about their significant others or that part of their lives and staying quiet or pretending you're not gay or just I don't I don't I don't remember to this day what I would do but just like not being in it I 
I, I think I had had enough of hiding that part of my life. Yeah, and it's cool that it was only two years. You're a pretty straightforward, honest person. So yeah, two two years me realizing it, and then five years hiding it when I was in a relationship where you know that wasn't a part of the partnership. It wasn't part of the deal. Exactly. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> All right. So since that relationship has ended and you've had others since then, and you've been out in the dating world, as far as I know you, you are the lesbian that gets hit on and pursued more than almost any other friend I've ever had. And so since a lot of people come to me for dating advice and and want to know how to be better at flirting and hitting on women, from the perspective of someone who is often receiving that attention, what advice do you think people who are hitting on other women should know? This is all very flattering, Jordana, but it's funny because, as you know, I'm not someone who necessarily likes attention. I, just you even asking this question, I get nervous. No, but you get it. You get it whether you want it or not. <laughs> I know. It's really funny and it makes me nervous and then I get very awkward. But I, I don't know if I, <laughs> I need to think of what advice. If anything, I think being, and this is cliche, but it's true, being authentic, there's nothing I would say, even, I mean, at least for me, more attractive than authenticity. And also, I would say just being kind to people. I think sometimes how flirting and dating has been portrayed in film or media, I, I, I don't think there has been necessarily like accurate portrayals of like what a healthy flirting thing looks like, you know, uh, even myself, like I remember when I would be hit on, I was like, what, what, what is this pickup line? <laughs> this is so bad. So for me, anything that, I guess, anything that feels natural to you in the sense where it's effortless and you are genuinely interested in what the other person has to tell you, I think that's the most attractive thing. Where, where One of the questions I, I made myself when I started dating is, I'm just going to sit down when I go out and enjoy the conversation and also make sure I'm checking in with myself to see how I feel when I am in this space with this person. How am I feeling? Am I feeling I'm feeling happy? Am I feeling nervous? Am I feeling, you know, insecure? Do I feel like I have to say something smart? I remember I once went on a date with someone and I went to her home and she had bought all of these magazines like economy and politics magazine that I, I I know she didn't read but I thought it was like cute like I didn't make fun of her I thought it was cute and funny but I know she didn't do that you know and I'm, I'm not saying I don't acknowledge the effort but also is I guess what makes us attractive to other people is exactly who they are they don't need to pretend to be something that they're not because honestly also at the end of the day you cannot pull that off forever. And it comes off as annoying more than cool. Yes. Whereas someone just, even if they, even if one might be afraid that they're dorky, if they're being their genuine self, it's never that. It's just sweet and charming and adorable. Exactly. And if you're dorky, you're dorky and that's amazing. Like I think... It's better than fake. Exactly. Anything is better than fake. 
And trying too hard because that's the opposite of natural. Correct. What comes natural to a person. Correct. And also, I think I would add one last thing. This allowing the listening part to people, it's, it's just allowing the space for silence and to the flow. I guess sometimes when we're nervous, we talk a lot, you know, because we are nervous with someone we like or we do things we wouldn't normally do because we're nervous. And I think it's really putting in the effort of creating the space for authenticity to flow where, you know, you take time, you pause, you, if you're walking down the street, you, you walk enjoying the moment. There's something that's very important. This applies to anything, not only dating. Time never comes back to us. You know, we never get it back. Like not one single moment will ever be the same. The first date will be completely different from the second than to the year of dating. So taking in the enjoying every part of the process, I think is, it's also, it's, it's fun, you know, having actual fun when you're dating someone. Hell yeah. What's also good about allowing for the silence and enjoy and, and being in the moment is that you can have a better chance of checking in with yourself and seeing how you feel, like you said. Yes. And also, you know, of saying no, if there's something you don't feel like, if someone says, oh, would you like to go to this other bar and once we had dinner and you don't feel, no, thank you. You know, it's a, it gives you a chance to really decide what you want for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I honestly have never understood the, the hitting on me part because I, I wish, sometimes I wish I would actively pursue it. But I think just in general, you know, being kind to people can, I've learned now, can be attractive. I realized how there's a lack of kindness in general. You know, there have been times where I haven't been hitting on someone and it's just being kind and it has come off as confusing. And I, I think about it a lot. Meaning that you were just being nice to someone yes. and they got confused and thought you were hitting on them. Yes. Because you giving them attention at all and being nice, they mistook for romantic interest yes and genuine attention following up on someone i just met who one day tells me they had a migraine and i asked them the next day how's your migraine doing it's very surprising to realize how many people feel that the people around them aren't there for them or don't show this kind of how are you feeling today what's new what's going on and I, my, my hope is that beyond the flirting and whatever, that we genuinely care for whoever we're having a connection with at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any thoughts about lesbian dating and relationships that... Yes. Yeah, all right. Let's what hear it. What kind of thoughts? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Just insights that you can share, things you've learned. I... <laughs> I've learned that it's best to, when you can see from afar that conflict is coming your way and you have a chance to avoid it or run in the opposite direction, run. I, I, I don't know what it is. You, you tell me, but sometimes this, this push and pull, of, especially for first-time relationships, you know, they can be so... All these uh, things that they say about women, like the U-Haul, I, I never wanted to do that, you know? For me, it's more when I, I, I've had these moments where people, I, where I would talk to people for 
some time and then next thing they would say is what would you do if I show up in your place with my luggage and I go I go you don't even know me you know like why is it so strange to me to think that anyone would immediately want to move in with someone <laughs> I myself am slightly guilty of the U-Haul but I think for me it had more to do with the fact that when I was single and I'm rather picky I would be alone for a long period of time and then when finally someone came along that was just as excited about me as I was about her and we both were on the same page to me there seemed no reason to beat around the bush or wait it just I kind of would jump right into relationships at that point and I've always done that and Amanda and I my fiance we same thing as you know perfect match yeah but I know you take longer I know you I we talk all the time. I know you take longer to... Uh... I do because I get so nervous. Even this is... I get nervous. You know, everything is... I appreciate my alone time so much that I... It also, it's important to mention after the fact that I had a, a long-term relationship and, you know, we shared a home together and all these things that just being more mindful and intentional who I share my time with and space with. I remember just even being when friends would be like, Oh, I can stay and, and sleep over, you know, just like my friends. If we went out and I was like, no, there's no one I want to share my bed with, you know, th those kind of things, you know, because even the energy, I am very sensitive to energy. So I, after that, long relationship I decided to take a whole different approach you know just again uh, treasuring the time I had for myself and then treasuring the time I could share with someone else whether it would be dating or getting to know them or then being in a relationship but it has been as you know very well a journey to get to this thought absolutely so what advice do you have then about energy? What do people need to understand about their own energy, about how other people might be experiencing their energy and about how, about what they can do with their own energy if it's not in the place they would want it to be? I think that's the most important step to make sure, if, especially you want to go out there and start dating, to make sure you feel comfortable in your own energy. I always think that it's important to truly fall in love with yourself first and with anyone else to truly, you know, make sure you're having fun by yourself. But but let's pause. Let's double click on that, though, because people feel so insecure and we, we make mistakes and we don't always love what we see in the mirror, right? There's so many things that could stand in the way of someone knowing how to, to take that advice. So it's true. Do you have any steps, anything actionable things people could do? It's, we, you know, it's important to start with small things. And I have felt that way myself at times as well. But I think in the tiny victories, the small triumphs that say, if, you know, overall you had a terrible day, but you had this one moment where you had a nice walk because the light was perfect and the sun was shining in a beautiful way on the trees. I, 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 when I fell down, I tried to make this mental note of, I want to feel more like this. And how can I create a little bit more of that? 
and it's with small things even if, if if that is i had a nice talk with this one friend so even these conversations and when you don't have as many people in your life but how can you start creating them with yourselves with your own self how can you start looking at yourself in a different light for example in my case I remember after that relationship, I thought I wasn't going to meet anyone in my life. I was really depressed. And I thought, this is the end for me. And it's it's important. We're going through those moments to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and be open to things actually being different. We really need to feel from the inside that maybe that one day you will have a nice date with someone and that doesn't mean that needs to turn into a relationship that's the other thing i've learned you know there's moments where you can fall in love with someone for a lunch for whatever that lunch went on for for the dinner for the afternoon and there's kinds of like love affairs that take different forms so going back to the energy is just how can we instill more of love in our lives, in all of its forms, and not expecting anything in exchange. I like the idea of being open to things being different when we're in a bad place, right? We don't know how things can be different, but just being open to the idea that it might. And I liked what you said about starting small and noticing just small, beautiful things, like a beautiful sunset while you're taking a walk. Another coach and mentor that I love, Annie Lala, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, uh, she often talks about how when we just appreciate beauty, you know, if we're watching a movie and you see a character on screen just appreciating a beautiful moment, anyone who's watching that can will like that character because humans like that, right? You're happy for that character. We all can relate to that character, and there's a part of us that loves that character because we've all, you know, in, been in that moment, and so. She said that just appreciating beauty, just appreciating that sunset like you did, we become in that moment more likable, more beautiful as a human. And if we can catch ourselves appreciating beauty, we can feel good about ourselves bringing more beauty to this world in kind of a meta way. And so it's sort of exactly what you said in just different words. I love that. It's true because, and again, this is why role models are very important. In a way, they're... They're an example of hope to see someone else enjoying or being able to transform a situation in a way maybe you wouldn't have imagined. It's it's a point, it's a different starting point to see someone can can do it. There's a very interesting study in neuroscience that says that when we are reading whatever it is, like it's a it's a novel, it's a book, an article, when we take in that information, our brain how it processes the information in terms of visualization is we see ourselves at the character in question. Like the part in our brain that activates is the same part of the brain that would activate as if we were doing that action which we are reading about. Right, like mirror neurons? Yes. Where it's like we're experiencing it? Yes. So it's like you're building this muscle. So part of my work, and this is why also it's the kind of work I'm trying to do is what kind of content are we feeding ourselves, our brain? What kind of muscle, what, what, what story are we feeding it into what's possible? Right. So especially when we're feeling 
you know, sad and alone and depressed, if we feed it, feed it more of that, our, our brain is going to, that's what it's going to believe, that there's only room for that. But if we feed it stories or examples that make us feel a little bit of joy, a little bit of hope, a little bit of love, it, it's like building on that muscle that, that one day your brain can, can and will want to create that kind of world, inner world for you. Right. Since we have mirror neurons in our brains, we can improve our energy by focusing on stories that inspire us. But also, you can think about stories in your own life and like write a list asking yourself, what are some times where I was proud of myself? And you make a list about that because those are your own stories in your own life that when you're feeling bad can make you feel better. Or what are some stories of of times when you were happy? And what are some stories of, of funny jokes you shared with people in the past? Yeah, that's a great idea. And also the dark moments, like who told me I wasn't a funny person and what was the situation? Who told me I couldn't aspire to be more than I thought I wanted to? Like identifying the messengers of that, you know, that helped build these negative beliefs around you that they're not really yours. Right. Because you want to know what are the negative beliefs, right? Yes. And then where did these come from? Because is this even true? And does this serve me? Is this good for me to think this about myself? And, and where does it even come from in the first place? Who, where did I learn this? Who taught me this? Why do I think this? Exactly. So as one of the, just the most connected people I know, what advice do you have about attracting other people to want to work with you, to want to be a part of your, your life? What advice do you have about that? I think it's very important to be clear about what you're asking for. So in my projects, I try to be very concise in why am I approaching a certain person what's the purpose of my project what that means to me what I expect to happen why I thought of reaching out to that person so that clarity I think is it's priceless because then you also when when you're clear with all of these different aspects of of this approach it's creating the space for the other person to decide if it makes sense in their own worlds, you know, and just being very transparent in what your expectations are and why you're knocking on that door. Yeah. All of my projects I've approached whenever I knocked on different doors, it comes from a place of really respecting who I am approaching in the sense I respect their time, the time they take in having a Zoom call with me at the time, whether I'm meeting them in person, they took time to go somewhere and sit down with me because I asked them. Since, again, going back to how I was saying, I am very aware that time is something we never get back. So I'm very respectful of others' time in that sense when I, I want to pitch them something. And then in the being clear of why, why them, why her, why him, is I, I think you would be surprised sometimes People don't hear a lot of that, you know, that detail of, you know, I'm reaching out because I, this is what I see in you, or this is what I learned. And I think that's beautiful. It's just, even ultimately, whatever the result, just the exchange of letting someone know why you would like to collaborate with someone or why you thought about them, I think is, it's already progress. Yeah. Cause to some extent by sharing why they're special to you or how they've impacted you, you're giving them a gift or value regardless of 
what comes out of the meeting. Yes, and I think sometimes we're afraid to send. It did happen to me for a long time. Like we think people will say no, or we're scared to send some e emails. There was a ten, twelve years ago where you know I was getting to to go to different spaces, and I was just very intimidated by the people I was meeting or I wanted to contact. And there were two, three times where I didn't follow up with some people that I was very impressed by because I was very scared. Now I, I think I think it's it's silly for myself, you know, but it really makes me appreciate how important it is to understand where that fear came from, you know, and the fear of being rejected or what if I wouldn't play out to be whatever expectation that that person had to myself. And the truth is, and you now you hear it more and more. If you realize, I I'm, I put out together a media company where we're in the business of telling stories created by women from Latin America and Spain. We're trying to do different series and films. And now that I'm playing, paying closer attention to that industry, you get to hear a lot in that space, people being more vocal, that no one has a clue what they're doing. And I've also heard this in the tech space and the business space. And you think about it as humans, we are products of our own imagination. The world we live was invented out of imagination, right? And we all have these certain feelings in different levels of insecurity, fear, joy, excitement, nervousness. So it's if, if you know, deep down we know the other person has it, even though we don't, we're not going to talk about those things with them, But we start from that same starting point. We all have an array of emotions. You know, you realize at the end of the day, you're, you're talking to someone that could be more similar than you, than you could imagine. Yeah, absolutely. We're all just sort of making it up as we go along, I guess, to some extent. And they are too. But all of us humans, there's so much that we share, right? We share the fear of rejection. We share the feelings of loneliness. We share the love we have for the people in our lives. We share regret when we make mistakes. There's so many human things we can always connect with people on. Yeah. And I think the biggest, that's part of the process. And you say, how do you attract the other thing? The other thing is being constant is very important. Following up is very important. If we actually want to see things come for fruition and happen and take place to the make it happen part, is it actually putting in the daily work to see that happen? Otherwise, nothing will move, you know? If it's only an idea in our heads and there's no there's no follow-up to anything, we'll stay stuck in the same place. Yeah. And you've you've had a great history of of executing and really getting things done. So what are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm very excited about many things. That's my problem. That's my happy problem and my worst nightmare at the same time. So I'm working on a couple of projects in Anonima Media. So Anonima is this production company I was telling you about. And I love this this project because it, I co-founded it with Erendira Ibarra, who's an actress and activist. She was on Sense8, also the most recent film of Matrix and... This is a lesbian podcast. Let's talk about her soap opera, Spanish soap opera, wasn't she? What's it called again? The oh, it's, she was a, she played a lesbian. Las Aparicio. Yeah, Las Aparicios. Yes, which yeah, which was the first 
lesbian telenovela, right? Yeah, well, the first that had those, yeah, that had a, a, a storyline where, where two women got married. Yes. If you speak Spanish, check it out. It is considered to be like the first feminist novela in a way because of the kind of issues they talked about. So it, the my other partner is Natasha, who's Erendira's sister. You should definitely check out Las Aparicio. It's an amazing show. And Natasha, she's a writer and producer. And it's funny because 10, 12 years ago, one of my favorite shows on TV, Erendira was starring on the show and her sister was one of the writers. Like I would never miss it. Like I would come home from work and just watch it. And never in my life I would imagine 10, 12 years later, I they would be my partners. I I it's just like and even just me every time I say it, <laughs> I can't believe it. And I I met them, I met Erendira through one of my other projects a couple years ago called Decididas. So Decididas means decision makers. And this is a platform, it's a movement where we basically tell women's stories, uh, leaders from more than 30 industries, how the decisions they made to get where, where they are and, and to be who, who they are, who they've become. And we, we've been creating some summits. We started doing an online summit a couple of years ago. And last year we did our first in-person summit in Mexico City where we gather more than 300 women and men from all these industries in more than 10 countries to discuss gender equality and women's economy. So we, we invite from economists to activists to actresses, scientists, musicians, performers, journalists, lawyers, and it had never been done before. I don't think there's any other initiative in its kind in Spanish in the world. It's very ambitious. It's very disruptive. It's exhilarating as well. And the whole purpose is I realized because I get to, I have different projects and I'm involved in different kinds of spaces. I realized the end, the end, the overall problematic, we, it's, it's shared by all of us. And what we have been doing is we only gather with our own groups, let's say the lawyers, you know, gather in their own spaces with the lawyers and the actresses with the actresses. But we aren't talking to each other and we, it's not, it hasn't been multi-stakeholder, multi-sectorial. It hasn't been intergenerational. And the fact that with this space, we can bring together all these different leaders and decision makers, agents of change who have embarked on the most innovative and impactful initiatives around policymaking in, in economics or the most interesting projects in tech, and it's revolutionary. I'm very excited. We're putting our second edition for February 29th and March 1st. It's, it's at the Four Seasons in Mexico City. For us, it's very important for it to happen there because it's also a way of saying, you know, all of us can, can gather in a place like the Four Seasons and they've been an amazing partner. And it's, it's, a, it's a whole different experience. It doesn't even feel like a conference. It runs like a show. It feels like you're in a concert, but in a different kind of space again, because there's never been anything like that. And as you could see, it's something that I'm very passionate about. 
because it, it also creates a domino effect in the sense, and I'll give you some context. According to CEPAL, this organization, Latin America holds the highest gender violence rates in the world. And Mexico, according to many different organizations, we hold the highest rankings in all different kinds of violence, from animal abuse to human traffic to gender violence. And we, we hold the worst first places around gender violence. So all of this data, and a lot of it is it's data-driven. I work a lot with data. You know, this has a direct impact in our economy, in our public health, in our security. So when you address these things from that perspective and understanding that financial independence and education and financial opportunities in their direct correlation with the levels of violence and what's behind all of this is the stories we created in our culture as to why we feel we cannot access certain positions of power or why there's a lot of codependency or all these whys. So it's interesting to put this space together where we could talk from mental mental health to investing because we also invite uh, different funds and investors to banking, but also from storytelling and film and science and uh, motherhood. It's a space where we cover the issues from A to C in two days in a very dynamic way. That sounds amazing. Do you want to get into the podcast you're working on too? Yes. And also, um, I recently started a podcast called Estas Morras, which would translate into like these girls. And it started off as an experiment, of course, with four other friends and myself. We are very different. We come from different backgrounds, different age groups. And we decided to put this together as a way, as a round table. So how can we talk about uncomfortable and hard things that we maybe we don't know what's the right way to say something or what kind of opinion do I have around something that I don't know very well in a way where it's, it's a discourse that has the aim to be constructive And instead of creating this space where you would rather stay quiet because you're afraid what will people, how they will shame you or whatnot, we try more to support each other. And it's also a space where we, we laugh a lot. In the same episode, we could laugh and 10 minutes later, we're all crying. So we, we go deep in all kinds of issues from politics to pop culture to, you know, how we grew up to dating. And it it had a good reception. We entered the top 10 in the first few episodes. Now we're working on putting our new season together. So that's Estas Morras. And that's top 10 in like all Spanish language podcasts, right? Something crazy like that? Yes. It's, yeah, in, in Mexico. And I think we, we were able to get in some charts like in the US and other countries. It's it's very exciting. We... I, I mean, at least I, I never thought in the first episodes you can see me saying, because one of us was, was saying, oh, you know, this is your favorite podcast, podcast, everyone that's listening to this. And I would say the three people that are listening to the show. And currently there's, I think we have over 100,000 people listening. So it's wow. overall, it's, it's, it's fun. 
if if you want to learn Spanish or you know Spanish, make sure you check out Estas Morras. And what about where people can find and where could they go to learn more about Anonima and Decididas, everything and Estas Morras? Where can they go to find these things? So you can go to Instagram and find Anonima at anonima.media. Estas Morras, you can find us as at estas.morras. Decididas, you can find us as at decididas.summit. And yeah, check it out. I mean, it's fun. It's it's different. And where can they go to follow you? You can find me at Barbara, R-R-E-D-O-N-D-O-A-Y-A-L-A. Barbara Redondo Ayala. Amazing. And uh, do you have any last words or anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything last that you'd want to say before we wrap up that's important to get out there? I just want to say thank you, George, for for this time, for creating this space. I, I know you've been working on this project and it's so important to create spaces for for all of us, for the LGBTQ community. It's it's huge. There's We need more of them and you've been a trailblazer in that sense. So thank you. And I would say that if anyone here who listens to this and has been hesitating on starting an idea or a project, go for it just for the sake of, you know, not finding yourself later in life and, you know, feeling bad that you didn't do it. It's, the important thing is having the experience of doing it, being constant with it, going with it in, with all your 100% and make sure you're having fun. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me for this, Barbara. Thank you for having me. I love you so much. You're the best. I love you too. Muchísimo. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, don't forget that womenwantingwomen.com is packed with free resources that can help you build your confidence and have more success with dating. While you're there, you can book a one-on-one coaching session with me to get my personal support in finding the love you long for. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. And I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. Mm -hmm.